we continue our working through uh, church history, uh, Calvin's going to be the kind of 25th thing that we're going over, which means that this has gone really, really a long time, but um, uh, we're only going to spend one day on John Calvin. Um, depending on how the end of our time goes today, we might be spending next Sunday morning talking about baptism. So um, I, I, we're going to deal with some of that today. We're going to see how that discussion goes and see if, if we want to conclude it um, next week uh, is what I have in the back of my mind, but I'm not sure. It depends on how far we get this morning. Um, just as a brief, uh, it probably won't be nearly brief enough, biography of Calvin. Uh, Calvin was born in 1509, and so by that time, if you're trying to place him alongside of Luther, um, Luther had already been uh, consecrated as a priest. He, he had not yet received his doctor in theology, which came in 1512, and so even by the situation of their lives, Calvin is, is what we would call a second-generation reformer, and that becomes fairly important in his life and, and for the work that he is primarily known for in, in providing us with the institutes of the Christian religion. Um, as a second-generation reformer, he's going to have much more opportunities to do the work that Luther and Zwingli and others weren't able to do. Um, he was born in, I believe it's pronounced Nyon, um, but it's French, so it probably is Noyon or something like that. Um, France in 1509. It's a small town in the north of France. It's a small little village. Um, his, his dad was a pretty solidly middle-class dude. Um, uh, he worked for the cardinal in the area, so he had some, some position, and uh, he certainly had some connections. Um, he was decently successful, um, and because of that, he helped John to get an appointment for school. So John was going to enroll at the University of Paris. Um, both his father and John wanted him to go into the priesthood. Um, he was solidly, again, so born in 1509. Um, by the time, you know, 1520 rolled around when he was 11, 12, uh, the, the Reformation had, had just kind of picked up steam, and, and he was in France and not in Germany, so the early part of his life, he was solidly Roman Catholic, just like every other good Frenchman uh, at the time. Um, his, he was the second of only three children to get to adulthood in his father's home. Um, his, his mother would eventually have um, seven children. Um, four of them did not make it into adulthood, and she would die when John was still young um, after the, the last child was born. We don't know much about her, or at least I couldn't find much about her. Um, these sort of wealthy benefactors paid his way to the University of Paris, uh, where he was an exceptionally good student, as you would have thought. Um, he was going in for philosophy uh, first, um, and he graduated eventually with his Master of Arts. Um, but um, something happened in the middle of the course of his studying for the priesthood, and his father, I think, um, had been either dismissed or had changed his position in the north of France there in Nyon, and so he decided that he was going to go into the law, sort of like like Luther was going to, and um, he changed and went into the uh, University of Orléans, um, and then eventually the University of Bourges. Uh, during this time, he learned Greek, um, which was now something that you could actually learn and study in school, uh, which was somewhat unique. Obviously, Luther was able to do that, but a generation before Luther, that would have been um, almost unthinkable. Um, so he, he's learning Greek, but he's studying for the law, um, and then at some point in time, in between 1526 and 1533, Calvin becomes Protestant. And we, we don't have almost any idea of when that happened 
or how that happened. Um, so again, when we, we talked about Luther, we talked about Zwingli being a little bit different than Luther. Calvin was even more so. Um, we have um, many, many warm notes and, and pictures from Zwingli's life. Um, Luther was just a thunderstorm of a man, and he, he wrote a lot of his, his biography down himself. He wrote a lot about uh, what God had done in his life. Um, Calvin was a fairly closed book. He, he didn't write much about his own life, and so we, even though he was converted from Roman Catholicism to Protestantism at some point in time in those years, we don't know when it was. We know in, in 1533 he had to leave France because the political winds in France were changing because he was involved um, sort of in a second-hand way of, in something that was going to get someone else in trouble, and he was implicated in it, and so um, he was going to run. We don't know when that happened. There's there's basically two pieces of evidence. One is from his Psalms commentary. The most important is from his Psalms commentary. So he wrote a beautiful commentary on the Psalms. And um, what he says in there is this. God, by a sudden conversion, subdued and brought my mind to a teachable frame, which was more hardened in such manners than might have been expected from one at my early period of life. Having thus received some taste and knowledge of true godliness, I was immediately inflamed with so intense a desire to make progress there, therein, that although I did not altogether leave off other studies, yet I pursued them with less ardor, um, which is uh, a very strange way to write. Like I was immediately so so passionate about what I what I was what I was going to do that I studied this less hard. Like that's it doesn't seem like a huge amount of passion. Luther was like, so I took on the Roman Catholic Church, and Calvin's like, so I studied the law, just not quite as fervently. Um, but but nevertheless. Uh, this is his conversion. So he, he, he basically is converted here, and it seems to be before he's finished with his studies, um, before he's actually completed. So it doesn't seem to be at the, you know, 1533. It's probably before then, but we're just not, we're not very sure. Um, something of a chaste man. He goes up to Noyon again, back to Orléans, uh, before leaving France for good. Um, Francis I, who was the ruler over France still at this time, we talked about him during Luther's life, um, the political winds kind of changed, and he was really, really tolerant of a lot of Protestantism within his borders, and then he, he for reasons, political reasons, he changed his mind, and um, Calvin eventually has to flee, and he goes to Basel, and while in Switzerland, Basel, he decides that he wants to write, um, and this is what he feels like he's gifted in, and this is something he feels like is necessary and needs to do. He wants to write sort of a summary of the Christian faith for Protestants. Um, you know, Calvin uh, had a lot of background in this kind of stuff. He understood the ancient philosophers. He had read a lot of, you know, studying for ancient philosophy at the University of Paris. He would have studied Aquinas. He would have studied Augustine. He, he would have gone through the same kind of uh, teaching that a lot of ecclesiastics would. So he knew this stuff pretty well. Uh, he was obviously a very well-learned man. Um, his influences were primarily Augustinian, um, and so he sat down to do this. Um, one of the reasons why it was really important is because up to this time, Protestants just hadn't had a chance to catch their breath and do this. So they were continually writing about the importance of things like justification by faith and their distinction from Roman Catholicism, why Roman Catholicism was wrong, why they were right. Um, but they had very little time to sit down and actually pen um, a, a, a systematic theology from their viewpoint that would lay out all of the things that a systematic 
would do. Um, and, and especially um, things like the Trinity and even things like major life things like sanctification, which Luther just never really got around to, to truly writing all that much about. Um, Calvin decides, hey, there's a, there's a gap here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fill that gap. And he ends up writing the Institutes. Um, first version of the Institutes uh, has only six chapters to it. Um, it's meant to be a book that people can carry around with them in their pockets. Um, so although it's a couple hundred pages long, uh, men at that time had these big pockets and you could carry it around. And, and even in Catholic territories, it could be kind of concealed and you could still have it with you. Six chapters dealt with the law, um, the ancient creeds, the Lord's Prayer, the sacraments, uh, the errors of the Roman Catholic Church, and Christian freedom. Those were the only bits in it. Um, the first edition of that is released, uh, and it sells out in nine months. Um, he, he wants it to be sort of an apologetic for Protestant thought, so he is he's clearly counteracting Roman Catholic thought. Uh, he wants it to be a defense of that thought, but also then to help Protestants to teach others what it is that we ought to believe. And that includes things about the Trinity and about sanctification and Christology and things like that as well. Um, eventually, what the Institutes is going to turn into, so it starts out at six chapters, it's going to end up being four different parts, which he calls books for good reasons, and 80 chapters, as he will add to it over the course of his life. Um, again, people sometimes needed editors and they didn't get them. So he just, uh, he ends up writing a lot, a lot, a lot. Um, and this goes through successive editions. So there are editions all over the place. The last two editions that were written are kind of the authoritative editions. And the reason why there's two of them is one is written in, anyone want to guess? Two, the two languages that they were written in? Latin, obviously, for one, and he's French, so... Wow, gold star. So Latin and French are the, the two editions that were penned by Calvin. Uh, usually um, these two are used kind of simultaneously to produce translations in, into English and to German and, and other things. Um, Calvin, in his life, primarily wanted to do one thing, and that was to study and to write. He, he, didn't, he didn't consider himself to be bent and shaped for anything else. Um, and eventually he... He wants to, he works his way back to France for a time and he's kicked out again or he's running for his life again. Um, not because anyone's particularly after John Calvin, um, but particularly just because Protestant issues. And so he wants to go to Strasbourg in Germany. And um, because of military things that were going on at the time and the fighting between Catholics and the Protestants, he has to make a stop in Geneva. And he stops there and he's basically only going to be there for like two days. And while he's in Geneva, um, there's, there's a group that has... Um, in, in the worst possible way of putting it, have committed a coup in Geneva, and that is that there were some missionaries from Bern, Switzerland, who were sent to Geneva. Um, they converted into Protestantism a, a good portion of the, the laity who, who honestly, truly wanted the, um, the re reformation of the church, and they, they saw that this was a good way to go about doing it. Um, and they, they agreed to Protestantism. Uh, the second group tended to be the bourgeoisie, uh, who really were seem, in the end, to be much more interested in simply moving away from Rome, not because of theological things, but because of taxes and authority issues. And so uh, they just they saw this as a way to get like more worldly things by moving away from Rome. And so um, this is kind of what, what he walks into. So 
Um, the gentleman named Farrell is the guy who's in charge of all this. And Farrell uh, hears that the author of the Institutes, which is, again, sold out, is coming through his town. And so he pleads with them, he gets an audience with them, and he just lays into them. He says, hey, here's the reason why you've got to stay here. We need help. Um, basically, what's happened is these missionaries now have been handed the entire city of Geneva, and, and they don't have the leadership, and they don't have um, the the people with theological know-how to be able to manage the church or to be even to be able to manage the city and um and he needs a lot of help and so he he starts to ply calvin for this and calvin sips his coffee and and politely says hard pass i I just i want nothing to do with this and his whole point is listen you're asking me to be a pastor and and i can't do that i'm a i'm a scholar i'm a teacher all i want to do is is put my nose in a book and write and and i'm going to be happy and uh at the end of this uh Farrell does what everyone who is at the end of their rope does basically yells at calvin uh and he says may god condemn your repose and the calm you seek for study if before such a great need you withdraw and refuse your succor and help um which uh was the quote that I used when proposing to Brie, and uh, it worked both times. Um, so uh, we both got what we wanted, um, and, and Calvin, Calvin basically said, so I can't, it, it's difficult for me to imagine that this worked, right? Because Calvin had to know that, that I don't know, it's, it's such a bold statement. It seems like such an angry thing, and seems like Calvin would just brush it aside, but it really cut him, and he, he basically said, okay, okay, I don't know what I'm doing, but, but I'll stay, and I'll, I'll help out. Um, so they, they stayed, and they, they tried to help out. Um, basically, their whole deal was, the first thing they needed to do to get off the ground was to organize the church, um, because it was Roman Catholic, and now they're trying to change the form and the, the way in which they worship, so they're coming up with liturgies. Um, they're, they're trying to, to make these changes, and they keep hitting um, loggerheads with the, the council in Geneva um, because they, they have this confession and they want people in Geneva, all the citizens of Geneva, to sign the confession. And the council in Geneva is saying, we're not going to make people sign your, your silly little confession. And, and Calvin's like, we can't do this if we, we can't get this. And so um, the bourgeoisie really, again, the, the sort of middle-class, economically viable people who are there to make money, they don't actually care about the theological issues at play all that much. It seems like what they cared about was just being able to make money and being free from Rome. And so these kinds of changes just don't do anything for them. They don't want the rigorous life. And Calvin, by the way, is really rigorous in what he, the laws and the ways in which he wanted people to go about acting in their lives. Um, so uh, Voltaire has some, as Voltaire, so I don't know how much, how much you want to put into it, uh, but Voltaire talks about how, he's got a really scathing quote about how they didn't want, um, Calvin specifically, didn't want confession in a booth privately, um, but your whole life had to be lived that way publicly. That means that like you had to, you had to live his way or you weren't a good Christian, and um, the Voltaire wasn't a Christian at all, so I don't know how much stock you want to put in it, but um, he was very, very um, firm with how he wanted citizens of Geneva to leave or to live. There was a lot of debate, and eventually him and Farrell are kicked out. Um, and so uh, he ends up going to, um, uh, well, there's a, 
he's kicked out primarily because um, they cause a riot in the city of Geneva because um, the other cantons, the Swiss cantons, um, also wanted to force them to use unleavened bread in um, the rite of the Lord's Supper. And, and Calvin and, and Farrell basically just said, no, we're not going to do that. And the people just had an uproar about it. And again, you know, we kind of look at that and we're like, People really got fired up about the Lord's Supper back in the day, um, but nevertheless. Um, so Calvin and Farrell are told to leave, and what actually happens is there's a, and this is, I think you can see this in Calvin's writings, and you can see it in his life. There's a, um, there's a council that's convened in Zurich, uh, which again is a um, Protestant center, about this particular issue, about the unleavened bread, and about the, the actions of Calvin and Farrell, and they actually their conclusions are that Calvin just didn't care enough about the people. Like, uh, it's, a, it's an interesting note in his life that this man who was so strict and was, was trying to um, get people to follow him, um, basically they came back and said, whether or not you were right about this, you, you were not listening well to the people who were there, and you, you needed to do a better job of that. Um, eventually, uh, they, they tried to reconcile, but the city council didn't want anything to do with him, so he leaves and goes to Strasbourg. Um, this is where he finishes the second edition of the Institutes. He has an incredible three years of production there, um, and eventually he does come back um, in, to uh, Geneva and enact the reforms that he wants. Um, in the meantime, people want him to marry, um, and he just never really wants to marry. He can't find a woman who suits his needs. Um, he finally uh, accepts, there's a whole bunch of, um, I don't know what you call them, women who are brought to him for the purpose of being married. They're not coming to him. They're kind of like being led to him. I don't, I don't get it. I, maybe he was that uh, big of a prospect or something like that. But um, he finally accepts one who is from a noble family. Um, and he has a caveat, though. He says, I I'll marry you, but you have to learn French. And she says, yes. And then he, he says, okay, well, I'm not actually going to marry you. Um, and, and the quote that he has uh, is, um, as to why he didn't marry her, he said um, that he, he, he shouldn't have said yes, and he wouldn't have ever married her, quote, unless the Lord had left me entirely bereft of my wits. Um, <laughs> so so there's a... So there's a little Calvin, or there's a little, little Luther in him. Um, and if you read his writings, he's not like Luther, but all of these guys have really sharp tongues. Like, they're, they're, he's not, when, we, when you read especially the baptism parts that we're going to be talking about, uh, Calvin doesn't hold back too, too terribly much. Um, but later that same year, he marries Idelette de Bourg, or de Bourg um, who is a widow who has two children already, um, and he, he marries her and, and says glowing and wonderful things about her uh, through the rest of her life. She ends up uh, dying before him. Um, I don't know how, how old she was when he marries her, um, but, but he, he says that she was just a super helpful person to him in all of his pursuits, and she was never once a drag on him, and that he couldn't have done much uh, that he ends up accomplishing in his life. He, he says she was just an aid and a help to him the whole time. So... Um, Probably a good decision at some level. Maybe, maybe not put your, all of your thoughts in writing next time, but um, a good decision at some level. Um, after three years of being in Strasbourg, things in Geneva go just sideways, and they say, hey, we, we need you guys back. And so him and, and uh, 
and Farrell come back, and they start to put together um, the project that they've got in mind. And one of the things that they do, they put in, in place these ecclesiastical ordinances. Um, and, and according to Calvin, um, and I find this to be odd, um, he divides up the work of the church into four distinct areas. There are pastors who preach and administer the sacraments, so they do the Lord's Supper, baptism, and they preach. There are doctors who instruct in the faith, um, and I, it's, I don't exactly understand what, what the difference is between instructing in the faith and preaching, but nevertheless. Then there are elders who are there to discipline people, and then there are deacons to care for the needy and the poor. And he, he's very clear that he sees all of these in the New Testament, and I just have to kind of shrug you know, um, I just don't, I don't see that there is a, enough of a distinction between elders and pastors to warrant a distinction in the roles there. Um, and then to divide those up between elders, pastors, and doctors seems an even more sort of made-up distinction. Um, obviously, the deacons thing is fine. So, um, and then he, he also then made this consistatory, which basically was um, the elders of the church, which were lay elders, there were 12 of them, and the pastors, and there were five pastors. Those were the, the men who would be preaching in Geneva. Um, he was incredibly strict. Um, some might say he was strident or severe, um, and he continued to clash with the government uh, of Geneva. And that was when a man named Michael Servetus showed up. Michael Servetus was a Spanish physician, um, and he fled Spain because he simply didn't expect the Spanish Inquisition. And so uh, when, when he, when, I'm glad somebody got that. So when he flees Spain, um, he's a wanted man kind of everywhere because the main thing that, that he, he has written about, so he, by the way, um, has, a, at the time, he advanced medicine in terms of psychology quite a bit. So he wasn't a dumb man. He was a learned man. Uh, he did a, a good deal of um, of good things. Um, and the things that he did, though, when it came to dealing with scripture and church matters um, were twofold. Um, neither of these things, either the Roman Catholic Church or especially Calvin, would accept at that time. First one, uh, he, he argued vociferously that the separation of state and church authority has to be complete, that, that the church should not have their fingers in running the politics of the citizenry, uh, but at the same time, the the state cannot then force or coerce the church to do what they want to do. Um, and because of that, he traces that influence back to Constantine, and therefore he sees Nicaea as the great compromise in the church and something that should be undone. Um, he writes, um, and I, I didn't take the time out to read his trash, but he writes what some people have called completely incomprehensibly about the Trinity. Um, so he, he tries worse than Arius to kind of pin the biblical text back together uh, after he denies the Trinity and he, he just can't quite do it. He and, and Calvin start writing back and forth to one another under pseudonyms. Both of them know who they are, uh, but they don't want other people to know who they're writing to or something like that. So they're writing back and forth. Um, and Calvin, uh, he's, he's able, just people, I, I, I know there's probably more historical context than this, but uh, Calvin finally cuts off what really annoys Calvin is not, it is the heresy. Trust me, he's annoyed by the heresy. But 
at some point in time, uh, Servetus sends him back a copy of the Institute with notes for him to change what's written in it. Um, so he says, you're wrong here. Do this. You should say this. And it's just like chocked full of notes. And Calvin's like, I'm done. Uh, you know, so, you know, you know, if you're going to be an Arian, that's fine. But don't, don't mess with the Institutes, man. Um, so he cuts him off. And, and at some point in time, he says, hey, maybe I'll come and see you in Geneva and we can talk face to face. And Calvin's really clear. He says, if you show up here, I will not give you safe passage and you will not leave unless you're in a coffin. And he is he's really strong about it. Uh, he doesn't use quite those words, but he does, he does imply very strongly that if you show up here and I find out about it and you are in my, my area, we will try you for heresy and you, you will die. Because um, there was no doubt that he was a heretic. Uh, he was running from everybody. Um, he was running from uh, his, his views on the Trinity were objectionable to, to Roman Catholics and Protestants alike. Um, in the end, he does show up brazenly and ask Calvin for an audience. Um, he is arrested by the authorities. And the government is in this weird position because Calvin, it, they're trying to fight against Calvin. They're trying to show that he's not running the show, especially one, um, there's a city councilor who's, who's really against him. And um, but they're now in this really difficult position where they're trying to basically argue that they shouldn't do anything against Servetus, primarily because the Roman Catholics hate him and the enemy of our enemy is our friend or something like that. And, and Calvin and the rest of them say, no, no, he's, he's a heretic. And so they end up writing to the other cantons and saying, well, what would you do? And all of them write back and they're like, we would burn him. And so um, they decide to burn him. Now, Calvin does ask for him to be beheaded um, as a more friendly way of dying, um, which some people have knocked as sort of a way for him to only look better because he knew it was an impossibility. You can't behead heretics, they were to be burned, and they were to be burned by law. Um, so it's kind of like asking for favor that, to make yourself look better when you know that it's not possible to be answered. Um, so he is killed uh, there in the town. And after that, Calvin's um, grip on the city, and I use the word grip kind of, I don't mean it overly negatively. Um, it just, it, it is solid and it's never going to be challenged again. Um, and so, um, he is known for, that's not a great incident in his life, by the way, but again, the context in which it happens should be clear. Um, Protestants and Catholics were, were doing this kind of thing at the time. So um, it, they were not above, Catholics obviously were doing it. It's clear that Protestants were in the business of, of killing Catholics as well. This was just, when, when you believe that the church and the state are in line, I don't know how else you're supposed to handle it. So I, I understand I think Calvin is dead wrong on the way that he views the church and the state together. And one of the reasons why is because this sort of thing is inevitable when you believe the church and the state are bound together like that. There is no room for tolerance when stuff like that happens. Um, he, he has um, an incredible uh, life there in Geneva. Um, and again, very, very strict rule of law when it comes to how people were to behave. Oh, I do have the... Uh, the quote from Voltaire. I'll get to that in a second. Um, over the course of his time in Geneva, he preached over 2,000 sermons. He preached twice on Sunday, three times during the rest of the week. Each of those was well over an hour long. Um, at one point in time, he, he said, this is too much, and I need to, I need to drop 
uh, one of my Sunday sermons, and they said, okay, and that lasted for like a half a year, and they said, nope, you're coming back, and you're doing more again, and I said, okay. Um, so eventually, 2,000 sermons in his lifetime. Um, his legacy is basically the Institutes, though, um, but it's more than just Calvinism. So when, when we talk about John Calvin, the word that normally comes into people's mind is Calvinism, but you need to understand that the Institutes was well-received by just about every Protestant, and obviously Anabaptists would have, would have not agreed to a number of different points in the Institutes of the Christian religion. Um, but Luther was alive for them, and Luther read them, and Luther heartily approved of their publication. Uh, there was very little that he thought wrong in them. He might have tweaked things here or there. The, the major issue that was happening in the church at this time, Protestant church at this time, was over the Lord's Supper. It had absolutely nothing to do with predestination. It had absolutely nothing to do with total depravity. It had absolutely nothing to do with limited atonement. None of those things of which Calvin is now known were issues then. If you asked what Calvin really stood for, they would have said he, he is Protestant in thought, just like everybody else, except that he hits the middle ground in between Luther and Zwingli when it comes to the Lord's Supper. So he thinks that there is a real presence of the Lord there doing real work, um, but he doesn't think that it's in the, the bread or the wine. Or rather, it is, it is with the people, kind of, kind of the same, same view that we would take on it. Um, uh, the quote from Voltaire is this, uh, If they condemned celibacy in the priests and opened the gates of the convents, it was only to turn all society into a convent. Shows and entertainments were expressly forbidden by their religion, and for more than 200 years there was not a single musical instrument allowed in the city of Geneva. Uh, they condemned auricular confession, but they enjoined a public one. And in Switzerland, Scotland, and Geneva, it was performed the same as penance. In other words, you had to, you had to play the role in public. There wasn't just a your, your confession was the way you lived life, which is not a bad thing to say about Christianity, but, but clearly there was a strictness to what, um, what Calvin was doing here that would be mirrored by later, um, later things in Christianity. Um, where, do we, where do we agree with Calvin and where do we disagree with him? Um, a number of things can be said about, about that. Uh, generally, our church stands as um, what some might call a Reformed Baptist church. Um, I don't really know what word to use to describe it because we, we're not Calvinist and we're not Reformed. I know some, some Baptists use the word Reformed like that, um, but we're just, we're not Reformed. We're, like, Reformed includes how the church and the state handle one another and how the church government functions as a whole. We're not that. We just, we're ha we happen to be fairly, I would say, Augustinian when it comes to the issue of salvation and how it goes uh, along. So when it comes to the five points of Calvinism or the doctrines of grace or whatever you want to say it, uh, we generally agree with those things. Where we disagree with Calvin is on the relationship of the church to the state, which we've talked about a lot, but then also baptism. Um, and so what I want to do is kind of give you his take on baptism. Um, this is the Institutes, by the way. So, you know, it's not six chapters, and I can't walk around with this thing terribly easy. It's not super portable anymore, um, unless you have the PDF version of it, and then you can just carry it around on your phone, and that's super easy. Um, but you can tell that it's not like it's, it's not the large print edition either, so it's just, it's just a big book. Um, but Calvin wrote on baptism, um, and then he wrote a second chapter in the fourth book, the 16th chapter. Uh, he wrote about paedo-baptism, and this was in direct answer to a lot of the Anabaptist 
issues uh, and their issues with how he viewed baptism. Um, the reason why I think that this is important, he gives a number of arguments for pedo baptism, which is the baptism of infants, the baptism of children, of believers, um, as to why that is the practice and why it should be the practice. Um, I don't, perhaps if we get around to it, we'll talk about that next week, but I, I want to give you what he says this week about the main reason why baptism should be administered to infants, and then ask you for your take on it, okay? Um, and so, uh, the main reason why, and this is um, not shared equally by everybody who uh, baptizes infants, but it is it, it forms the basis of everything that, that Calvin really wants to argue about as far as infant baptism goes, is this. The, the sign that is given is not terribly important. What is terribly important is what it's signifying. So what does baptism signify? Okay, so here I'll read from the Institutes. Scripture shows first that baptism points to the cleansing from sin which we obtain by the blood of Christ, and secondly, to the mortification of the flesh, which consists in participation in his death, by which believers are regenerated to newness of life, and thereby to the fellowship of Christ. And so we have no issue with, with his description of what's happening in baptism there. It's the forgiveness of sins, the cleansing of his blood, so water, picture of cleansing. On the second hand, he says, so you've got the forgiveness of sins on one hand, and then on the other hand, you have this mortification of the flesh, a death and a life, right? So these are the very things we talk about when we baptize people, okay? So nothing there. Um, so then he says, well, in order to understand this, what we have to do is we've got to talk about circumcision. And then he begins to talk about circumcision. And he says this, okay, so how are these two things alike and how are they different? He says this, the sign of circumcision, when the Lord enjoins Abraham to observe circumcision, he promises that he would be a God unto him and his seed, adding that in himself was a perfect sufficiency of all things. He then goes on to say, now, okay, so, so basically, the promise in Genesis 17, when you go there, is that God will be with Abraham, okay? I, I, there's really no other, what I'm, what I'm thinking about doing is going over Genesis 12, 15, and 17 next week, but in Genesis 17, the promise isn't for land, the promise of circumcision isn't given for land, and it's not given for descendants. It's simply given for God's presence, that he will be with them, unlike any of the other nations. So he changes Abram's name. He's not Abram, exalted father anymore. He is Abraham, the father of many nations. But then God says, but I'm not going to be with you and with everybody else the same. I'm with you particularly. And you'll know this because of circumcision. Circumcision is the sign that I will be with you. And so if you circumcise your kids, I will be with them. I will be their God. They will be my people. If you don't circumcise them, then they're right out, okay? So that's what circumcision is. And what Calvin says is, now, the first access to God, the first entrance to immortal life, is the remission of sin. So he says, if in circumcision God is promising to be with you, that is an indication that he has forgiven your sin, okay? And so he's drawing a connection directly to baptism, okay? The second bit, unless any doubt whether circumcision were the sign of mortification, so that the death of the believer and the resurrection to new life, 
Moses explains more clearly elsewhere when he exhorts the people of Israel to circumcise the foreskin of their heart because the Lord has chosen them for his own people out of all the nations of the earth. So, Deuteronomy 10 and Deuteronomy 30, Moses says, you are to circumcise your heart. And, and Calvin says, ah, but that's mortification. So, circumcision signifies both the forgiveness of sins and mortification leading him to this conclusion. And I'm reading directly from it so that you will know that I'm not going overboard in this. He says this, the only difference which remains between baptism and circumcision is the external ceremony, which is the least part of it, the chief part of it consisting in the promise and the things signified. Blah, 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 blah. Hence, it is incontrovertible that baptism has been substituted for circumcision and performs the same office. In other words, there isn't a lick of difference between them. No difference between baptism and circumcision. No difference at all. What he says the only difference is is that one is baptism and one is circumcision. The signs have changed, but what they're doing has not. Okay? Now, I would like to know what you think of that as we kind of open this up. What do you think of that argument? I do too, uh, but I'm supposed to play devil's advocate, so why, why do you think it's ridiculous? Yeah, I, I think that he would say, like, the, he would go to Titus, and he would say the comparison is not his. The comparison is, is God's. So in Titus 2, baptism and circumcision are clearly linked in some way, shape, or form. I've, I've tried to argue before that they're not. I did that in a sermon once. I was wrong. They're clearly linked in some way, shape, or form. And so he would say that it's not really his comparison. It's the Lord's. And, and I think the Baptists are also have to affirm that there is some likeness, right? There, there, is, there isn't a complete dissociation between circumcision and baptism. They aren't the, I'm, we might want to, we certainly want to soften what he says here, um, but we don't think that they're completely separate things. They're not completely different. They, they do something similar, so. Right. I think that that's the most normal Baptist answer was the book of Galatians would have been one sentence. Quit freaking out about circumcision and baptize people. 
right? Because that's the answer. It's super, super straightforward. And one of the things when you read through Calvin, I'm not doing devil's advocate very well here because I'm too much of a Baptist to do that. Um, one of the things that Calvin never does, at least that I've, and maybe he does somewhere else, and maybe, maybe I've just not paid enough attention. So I don't, I don't want to um, make it seem like what I'm about to say is 100% true and I can't ever be proven wrong. I could be wrong, but I haven't seen it is talk about why the sign has changed. So if the signs are the exact same, the question has to be, why were the signs changed? So you could still have circumcision in the New Testament, which would clear up a lot of problems, or you could have in the Old Testament allowed for baptism. They already had ritual washings. So the idea of people washing to have their sins forgiven is frankly not really connected to circumcision at all. He, that, that is the biggest leap of them all. Like, he is just, that's, that's like, I don't know, um, six, it's like 12 degrees of separation. You've got to jump to jump to jump to jump to jump to get from one to the next. And he just jumps from one straight to the other and doesn't explain it at all. Um, so yeah, I, yeah that's, the Galatians argument is a good argument. Anyone else? Yeah. So again, I think that's, and when, when David said that's that Zwinglian sort of explicitness that, that Baptists in this case are looking for, and, and Zwingli wouldn't have been, right? Um, and what, you know very well, what are the passages that they would point to to get around that, though? They, they would point to the household passages, right? So all of, his, all of his household was baptized, and they would say, well, come on, there were kids there. And, um, and you're like, okay, well, maybe there were, but one, it's not clear that household would have necessarily included all of those children, right? And two... Um, it just doesn't say that there were children there. So there might not have been children there. So um, it's, um, any, anybody else? I don't mean to cut anybody off. Anybody else have any thoughts on it? I was thinking it's interesting that you talk about the idea that church and state didn't intermingle. I mean, that was Israel, right? I mean, the sign of mm-hmm. Right. And, and one, of the, one of the differences then we would have to hold out between Presbyterian churches today and Calvin's church, which, which we can come back and rightly critique them as not actually being reformed, is the reformed, we're, we, live in a, we live in a country that's been formed by Baptists because we, we do have this separation of church and state, which was our idea. And Calvin didn't have that. No, was, Luther had a, a perception of it as well, but it, it didn't get carried through very well. Um, Calvin just didn't have that idea. So 
when you talk to Presbyterians today, they, they don't think like that. They don't, they're not using that. But to doubt that that was sort of the backdrop to at least part of Calvin's insistence is, is I think, to miss the historical context. Even if he doesn't make that connection directly, I think that that's probably very, very true, um, that there is this direct link uh, between what Israel was doing and what Geneva was doing. Believe, believe it or not, there are a couple of crazy, confused Baptists out there who are doing the, the same thing. So Baptists are not immune from that. They just have no, they're even further, like it's even more incredulous that Baptists are doing that given what Baptists typically think about the relationship of church and state. So um, yeah, I, I think that his, his major difficulty um, is found here. And Again, I don't think that all Presbyterians or all Methodists or all Anglicans um, who would, and, and remember, this is also the first um, Roman Catholics didn't have to write about this very much, right? There, there weren't, they weren't fighting against people who wanted to baptize by creedal confession. Um, they, they, that didn't occur until the Protestant Reformation. And so, Calvin is actually writing against Anabaptists who have an even bigger problem than the Protestant Reformation did in not getting a chance, as we talked about last week, through martyrdom and other things, to systematize their thought. Um, it's going to take a while before Baptists can, can really start to argue against these things. And Calvin was one of the... This, he, he's penning these things, but he's not... Um, he, he's kind of doing this at the forefront of technology, so to speak. He, he's not pulling this from a number of different people. Now, Augustine wrote about infant baptism, but it was in a different age and a different time. So, um, and certainly he's not writing against Anabaptist belief, and, and that's something that Calvin's doing a lot. But nevertheless, this whole, uh, you, you're really struck by how strongly he words the connection between the two, that, that they're both doing the exact same thing, um, and therefore they are the exact same thing. They're just different is in the administration of the right, not in what they're signifying. Um, and I think that our, our response, you know, and part of it will come next week, I think. Um, I'm not sure that I'm going to do it now. But um, um, in our understanding of what circumcision actually symbolized, it just doesn't do what Moses wants it to do. Uh, it, just, it, it just doesn't do that. It, it does something different. Um, and what Moses is doing is reading... Um, he, he would argue with me on this, so this is probably not a fair, I think this is a good critique of him. I don't think that he would find it fair, um, just to be upfront with you. Uh, what he is doing is assuming that baptism and circumcision are what he thinks they are, and then reading the Bible that way. So this is why he makes the, again, I'll read you the whole point about the, um, uh, when the Lord enjoins Abraham to observe circumcision in Genesis 17, he promises that he would be a God unto him, true, and to his seed, true, adding that in himself was the perfect sufficiency of all things, and that Abraham might reckon on his hand as the fountain of every blessing. He goes on to say other things which are sort of related and sort of not. And then he finishes that by saying, Now, the first access to God, the first entrance to immortal life, is the remission of sins. 
Like that is just a huge leap that God could not enjoin himself to a people without remitting their, their sins in that sign. Um, I, I think that, that he's, he's got like 18 steps that he's missing in there. And circumcision was meant in Genesis 17 to simply say, I'm going to be a God to your family unlike I was a God to, or unlike I will be a God to the Amorites or to the Egyptians or to anybody else around you. I will not be with them like I am with you. And it has a lot to do with the name change of Abraham. So he's changed the name from Abram to Abraham, but there's still this promise. It's a distinct promise and a distinct covenant. And what Moses is, or not Moses, what Calvin is doing is actually bad, simply bad exegesis of Genesis because what he's doing is he's linking the rite of circumcision as a covenant back to Genesis 12, which he ought not do. Um, and, and that's something that we, we might want to talk about next week. But um, we're kind of out of time. This week, thank you for talking about baptism with me. It's one of my favorite topics. Uh, you might have noticed I love talking about baptism and talking down the Presbyterians. Um, I, I, came, I came this morning with two goals to chew gum and to talk bad about Presbyterians, and I, I ran out of gum, so... Uh, um, no, but and they, we, we need to say again, these, these are um, secondary issues. They're our friends in the gospel, um, Methodists the same way, um, who hold rightly to the gospel. And so uh, these, are, these are minor issues that we would quibble with. We certainly don't want to make the thing out of them that Calvin does, because Calvin's, Calvin's really clear they're heretics. Um, but we, we don't want to say that about Presbyterians. And we will joke about that in, in passing, but... Um, um, it's, a, it's a slight difference between us and them um, that matters for us but is not the most important thing. So, uh, any, any questions on John, Calvin? Yes, sir. I mean, And it's, it's, label, it's, it's the label that's applied to it is sort of, they're, they're using this generic term that covers a lot of things to cover a very limited number of things. Yeah. Good. Kenneth Good? With an E on the end? Oh, okay. Thank you, brother. Any, any other comments or questions? Yes, sir. Yeah. And, and 
it, it basically becomes mass. And, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right, and I, I think I think that that's a more um, a much more modern sort of, especially in Baptist circles, take. So the the initial Baptists, again, were they were free to use the term sacrament. They they thought of it as a means of grace, um, and I think that we should still see it as a means of grace, just like the proclamation, because it is a proclamation of the gospel. We think it's a picturing of the gospel. Well, how do people get grace? They they see the gospel, they hear the gospel. So there's nothing wrong with thinking that it's a um, it's a means of grace, but it's a means of grace only by faith. Like it's not, it's not an automatic. You're here, and and because I consecrated some some crackers, we're gonna we're gonna have the blessing of the Lord. So. Um. Yeah. I mean, he basically says that it's it's talking about. That's one of the the other issues, but we don't have time for it. Um, circumcision of the heart is meant is what circumcision of the flesh is meant to symbolize. So when he says circumcise your heart, what he means is that because you were circumcised in the flesh, you ought to live this way. And so what circumcision of the flesh is symbolizing is that you, you're striving to be circumcised in the heart. You're striving to be regenerated or something like that. So the problem that I have is I, don't, I think that he's got those things backwards. I think circumcision is forward-looking in saying, if you've been circumcised, then you ought to be circumcised in your heart. Baptism is actually backward-looking. Baptism says, this is true of you now not make it true of you. So when Moses says that, he's clearly saying, make this true of you. In baptism, what we're saying is, this is true of you. One is an indicative, one is an imperative, and they're going in different ways. And I think that that's another big error that he makes when he compares the two. Um, but he, he does link them by saying, this is the mortification of the flesh. It's the, the burial and resurrection is circumcise your, your flesh, circumcise your, your heart. They're, they're combined in that way. So it's good. Good question. Yep. No. But um, it changed pretty quickly. So the, the problem is, honestly, no matter how you answer that question, there's going to be 18 people on the other side who are going to answer it differently. There's just not a huge amount of information. We do know that by the time the church fathers started to appear, um, the practice had been around for a, a while. So there's, there's pretty good evidence, I think, that you could make the case, as other people, Ferguson is one of the guys who does this, I've got a great big thick book on baptism, um, where he makes the case in the first couple of hundred years, it was unheard of, that, that infants weren't baptized, uh, maybe in the first 200 years of the church, but then something happened and those, those practices sort of changed as we go along. So certainly by the 400s, when Augustine is writing, Augustine will have nothing to do with, with not baptizing infants. He is strongly for infant baptism. So kids are here, um, which means we're done. Once the kids show up, the fun have to stop. So uh, let's, let's pray and uh, we can be dismissed.
Father God, we thank you for Calvin. Uh, we, we disagree with him um, uh, on this particular issue and on several others, but uh, we are grateful for his work here. We're grateful for how he has helped us to think through things. Um, and I, I pray, Father, that we will uh, do our best to understand the Bible, to see our own mistakes in, in our own exegesis, and to let Scripture correct us and, and straighten us out on these things. May your word be true, and, um, and may it convict us of a, where we are wrong, and may we be wise enough to be led hum- Uh, humbly uh, toward your truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.